Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So we're going to take a little break from Trumpland, yes, thank God, this week so that I can welcome a guest to my show who is a world-famous magician. Why a magician, you might ask? Well, that's because there's something the magicians know about their audience that is not too dissimilar to what politicians and news outlets know about their audience, and that is that people want to believe. So that's the entire reason that magic works in the first place. We'll get to this and more in the show, but you can imagine how it relates to fake news and social media and the world we live in today. So my guest has some fascinating stories he's going to tell us about the marketing tricks old magicians use to become famous, like Houdini and folks like that. And he's going to explain how some amazing tricks work, which he's not really supposed to do, but he'll do it just for us, as long as you don't tell anyone. And he's going to tell us how magic is often used in war, in the battlefield. Yes, in war. In fact, during World War II, there was a group of magicians who were recruited by the Allies to help fight Hitler. They helped disguise battleships, make entire ports disappear from the sky so that bombers couldn't see them. And they also created these James Bond-like objects that prisoners of war could use to escape, like shoelaces embedded with wire that they could saw through bars or board games that contained real currency and playing cards with maps of escape routes. And finally, he's going to talk to us about how magicians sometimes work with folks like the CIA and FBI to try to catch bad guys. In fact, my guest today has actually created a TV show around this very concept. If you stick around after my guest is on, I'm going to talk to John Kelly about a story that I wrote that's going to be in this issue's Vanity Fair about spies who work in Silicon Valley. Yes, Russian and Chinese spies who work for companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google trying to steal secrets about AI and futuristic technologies and so on and so forth. So stick around after the show and you'll hear about that. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton, and I have a magician in front of me. Can you, can you, can you do a magic trick? Ta-da, here I am. Wow. So um, my guest today is uh, David Kwong, who has been a magician for many, many years, um, uh, studied at Harvard. Uh, he didn't go the traditional traditional 
route for a magician, but we'll, we'll get to this in a little bit. Um, he's uh, written an amazing book uh, on uh, illusions and deception. He has a, a you producer on the TV show, Deception? I am. Deception on ABC is about a magician that joins the FBI, and it was something I hatched with Chris Fedak, uh, our brilliant showrunner. He created Chuck, so it has that fun spy sensibility to it nice and then uh and you also do the new york times crossword puzzles you create those which which we'll get to and uh and you gave a ted talk recently about um how uh illusions and puzzles and things can change how you wander through the world right yeah and i break down illusion into its principles i like pulling back the curtain on on magic and showing you how your your brain is well, so perfect. So I, I I wanted to so part of the reason I wanted to have you on is I'm fascinated by the history of all this and, and if technology has changed magic and um and how. Um but also, you know, it seems like the world we live in today uh is full of, of complete bullshit most of the time. Uh especially on social media and other places and in politics and uh and I wanted to hear kind of your thoughts about how how people pull off this these these deceptions and how one can there's a lot to talk about there's a lot to talk about so so let's get started i'm curious how did you get started being a magician most of us start when we are very young i was a seven-year-old kid when i saw a magician performing at a pumpkin patch in upstate new york as you do yep and uh the, the the key element there, the key moment, was that this magician didn't just fool me, but he fooled my biochemist father, who hmm. is the smartest omniscient guy I know. And uh, when I what saw was the, the trick? scientist, it's it's the little red sponge ball trick, which many magicians still think is one of the most powerful tricks that you can do because it's such a it defies the laws of physics. And basically, the magician puts a little red sponge ball in the kid's hand, takes a second one, makes it disappear. And then the kid opens his hand, and he has two. My mind was blown, but then he did the exact same thing to my father. He put a little red sponge ball on my dad's hand, made a second one disappear. My, my father opened his hand, and he had two. And I remember turning to my dad and saying, how did that work? And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, I have no idea. How did it work? Well, <laughs> I can't, even the simplest tricks like that, I cannot reveal. You can't reveal? Can you, no. can you tell us any tricks and how they work? I, I'm glad you asked that. Whether it's my book or Deception on ABC, I do pull back the curtain, but it's always on the principles and the scientific and psychological underpinnings of how the tricks work. But so don't I, Penn and Teller, they, aren't they, don't they show you how things work? Yeah, they're the, the great uh, crusaders of this uh, approach, and they famously have they've sought a lady in half in a clear plastic box, and, uh, but they always put a twist on the end that makes you question what just happened. So, um, and they, they obey the rules, um, that, that I try to follow as well, which is don't reveal anything that could ruin somebody's magic show. So these tricks that are old enough are okay to skewer. Do you, do you as a magician see other tricks and know how they all work? Or are there some that you're like, holy shit, is that real magic? For the most part. No, I, I don't believe in real magic, probably, unfortunately. Uh, for the most part, I speak the language of this profession, and I, and I know how everything works. But every once in a while, somebody comes up with something really cool, and we call that getting burned. When a magician fools another magician, we call it getting burned because you feel it in your chest, and you're like, oh, my God, what just happened? Well, there was one trick. There's one trick that I still cannot 
ever get my head around, which I think I mentioned to you uh, last time we saw each other, which was um, there was a magician and it was an astronaut who was going to space. I'm, I may mess this up a little bit, but he was going to space and the magician said to him, stop at the local Dwayne Reed or something on your way to space um, and he buy a deck of cards and he did and gets up into space and the magician was down here on earth on television and uh, and picked a card or said pick a card or whatever and uh, when the the astronaut opened up the deck of cards it was turned around it's a great trick and I'm, I'm glad it fooled you uh, because I actually think that's somewhat problematic that gets into the territory of a pitfall of magic that we call too impossible so so the fact that he was on the on the moon or orbiting the moon or wherever he was mm-hmm. makes it so there's no plausible way that they could have uh, communicated or, to, or a card could have traveled. In other words, if I'm going to make a card disappear right in front of you and it appears in a box next to me, your mind will f- imagine and fill in this gap that I probably slipped it into the box when you weren't looking. But when we're talking about from the Earth to the to a orbiting space station, uh, you're, it's too impossible, and your brain actually goes to the easiest solution, which is which might be <laughs> that that the that, <laughs> that the was astronaut was up, in on it, or or that um, it's maybe not a regular pack of cards, or that maybe there was a TV edit involved. You start to not believe the magic because it's too good. Do you believe that was that a magic trick or I know how that was done. And you I'm, do? I'm not I can't Come tell on. you Nick. I can't tell you. Oh, that one has literally played Even my mind. Even some of the simplest tricks are are sacred to us. Um so over the years, you know, technology over the last decade, two decades, technology has disrupted every industry imaginable. Um I mean, we're doing a podcast 10, 20 years ago that would, wouldn't have existed and we, you know, you'd be on NPR or yeah. not doing you know, a radio interview. What, how has technology affected magic? We've had to evolve with it. Certainly, if you go on YouTube, all these tricks are exposed. In fact, you could probably do a deep I Google could look up my astronaut out. one? Yeah. yeah. All right, I'm good. not going to lead you to the trailhead of that, but you're welcome <laughs> to go down that path. Um, so we've had to do a number of things. First of all, some people, and this is a lot of fun, some people release fake videos of explanations just to dilute the pool. So they're making fake news about magic fake to, news. Make, yeah, to, like, make, to make people believe that they're understanding how a trick works. Or that you're going to waste five minutes of your time thinking how you're going to learn it, and then you get to the end and it's either a fake explanation or it's, or it's just a gotcha moment. Huh. But... On a larger scale, the way I think it's affected our approach is that fewer people now are pretending to have superpowers in a sort of godlike way. Um, you, were early magicians believed to have had superpowers in a godlike well, way? Well, I think if, even if you look at the late 80s, early 90s, when people were making buildings and David Copperfield was making the Statue of Liberty disappear— you couldn't do that today because everyone has a video camera on their phone and you can't get away with something like that. No one's going to believe it. So the approach with magicians today is a lot more stripped down and it's basically acknowledging up front that we are technicians and it's sleight of hand and it's misdirection and we're going to demonstrate this for you now and fool you and maybe even uh, expose a little bit, maybe even let you see some of the moves and make it sort of a teaching effect. But then 
do a little twist at the end to still, still fool you. And so I, I, you recently did an interview um, where you were talking about how so much of the so many of the tricks today and so much of the magic today is actually built on the ideas of people who are around uh, Dakota, people like that who are around um, a hundred years ago, right? And that not not that much has actually changed. You're still doing the whole saw the woman in half and and things like that. Yeah, we 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 stand on the shoulders of those giants from the turn of the last century, and we're we're a lot of magicians are putting a fresh coat of paint on that old stuff. And, and so technology hasn't way. made the woman being sword in half better or different or? No, there's, there's cooler ways to do that trick now. And certainly there have been development, development, uh, excuse me. Certainly there have been developments with, uh, technology, microcircuitry, um, iPad magic, things like that, where, where tricks are getting better and more, more deceptive. And we often, take these uh these micro circuit these very well designed technologically advanced things and we hide them in analog devices and still pretend that we're using a normal pencil when there's you know wires running throughout it do you um when you first started and and the things you do today you've taken this kind of i wouldn't say it's a route that i've seen any other magician take you went to Harvard, you, you know, you do crossword puzzles, you've um, written a book on how you can apply it to business and life and so on and so forth. How did you start to kind of pull those things and those strands together? I couldn't have planned any of, any of it for sure. Um, and it, 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 it's funny, like I, I went to Harvard and I just wanted to study history, but I ended up uh, were you like doing magic tricks in you know, oh, yeah, Harvard yeah, yeah. Square all the time? That's the thing. I've been doing magic at a professional level since I was a little kid, but I never thought there was an actual career in it. So that came quite late. And I pulled together all these different experiences I had, but it, it was always a passion. I focused my history major on Houdini and Thurston and Keller and all these great magicians from the golden era. And then, uh, and then the light bulb turned on not so long ago, when I was 30 years old, seven years ago, that I should fuse together my world of puzzles and games and magic and kind of do this hybrid cerebral brainy magician thing. And it, um, it's been a natural fit and it works well. And so before we get to, I want to get to your book and the TV show and fake news and all that fun stuff. But I, I wanted to, when you were studying all these early magicians like Houdini and people like that, what were some of the most fascinating things you learned about them? Like what were there some that were like really eccentric or that came up with amazing ideas that had blown people's minds or. Well, these, these guys were expert marketers. Some of them were amazing illusion builders, but Houdini was really a master of capturing the public's attention uh, my favorite character, this is my favorite character in all of magic history, was uh, the great Chinese magician Chung Ling Su. Okay. And Chung Ling Su was actually the follower, uh, a copycat of the original uh, great Chinese conjurer named, named Ching Ling Fu. What year is this? Ching Ling Fu, I think came over it was definitely 19th century i think that chingling fu made a splash in the 1890s at uh one of the big expositions uh in the midwest you know like the world's fair kind of thing did did these guys and before you go on it did these were these were 
was the public, did they believe that it was truly magic or did they know it was some sort of technological feat that they had pulled off? No, I think people really, it, it's, it's not so different than today. You, you go to a magic show and you buy into the contract that this is entertainment, but then things happen over the course of that hour and you start to think maybe this guy is possessed with something or maybe he has an ability that, that I don't know about. And people... People want to believe at the end of the day. So hmm. there are some people that fully buy into it, and they forget that it was advertised as entertainment. All right, so let's go back to, to these guys. Ching Ling Fu, he comes over to the U.S. He's the great corp conjurer to the Empress Dowager of China, and he's doing tricks with firecrackers and rice bowls and beautifully colored ribbons and the Chinese linking rings, which we still do today. So these Chinese tricks. And sparks this craze for oriental magic in America and in, uh, in Europe. And all of a sudden, these imitators start coming out of the works. So then we get Chung Ling Su, who starts claiming that he is the real court conjurer to the Empress Dowager of China. So you have this Chinese magician face-off. And one of, them is, one of them is honest, and the other is making it up. Or are they both making it up? They're both very good magicians, but... Yes, Ching Ling Fu, the original guy, uh, he was the real... I, I, I mean, I don't really know if the Empress Dowager of China had anointed him. It's, I'm, I will have to look that up. But, uh, but yes, he was the original one, and Chung Ling Su was the copycat. And then they, they get into this magic fight, and the headlines read, uh, Can Fu fool Su, or will Su Su Fu? <laughs> Did I get that right? That's even a tongue twister. I can't even yeah. remember, but you get the idea. And they go. They ha they 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 have this public challenge, which is basically uh, that they'll they'll show up and try to outdo each other with their tricks. And the original Chinese magician Ching Ling Fu does not show up. So Chung Ling Su declares himself as the winner, and he <laughs> he goes on to great success, touring the world, one of the highest paid performers of his day. And then the craziest thing happens. Chung Ling Su, I think this is in 1925 or 6, he's at the Wood Green Empire Theater in London doing his famous bullet catch trick, which is condemned to death by the Boxer Rebellion. And, what is the trick? Uh, riflemen would stand on one side. There's beautiful colored posters, lithograph posters you can see of this, and would fire a bullet at him, and he would catch it on this porcelain plate. Okay. And the gun fires, and he collapses to the stage. Now, Chung Ling Su never spoke English ever. It was always Chinese. But in that moment, he, he says something to the effect of, something horrible has happened. In English. In English. Yeah. And he dies that night. And the world finds out that Chung Ling Su was an American white man pretending to be Chinese, a brilliant illusion builder named William Robinson. Huh. And the magic community knew this, but the, the public didn't really know. And had the, how did the trick, how had the trick gone wrong? The, over the course of many, many, many performances, a screw had bore a hole uh, allowing little pieces of little grains of gunpowder to seep into the area that would actually fire the bullet. Huh. And did 
his nemesis come out of the dark after that or he didn't really um I, i've read some accounts and and he just kind of retired in china and and wow that's amazing so yeah. he was so he pretended all along that he was a chinese magician but really he was yeah. just and there were lots of there were lots of oriental impersonators at the time and i that's what i found so fascinating about the whole subject is that there was this delicious tension where on the one hand, pretending you are Asian enhances the mysticism of your show. But on the other hand, you are uh, scorning this the other, the immigrants, and you're, you're walking around as a bumbling Confucian on stage and making fun of this race. And then you're pulling miracles and saying, ah, but they have this innate huh. mysticism. Who, did, what, did you learn anything about Houdini that was fascinating or... I'm not the best Houdini scholar, but uh, you know he's he, he really. What's interesting to me is is the time that Houdini really took off, and it was um, it was this era where people were starting to go to to Coney Island and to the beach and and bodybuilding, and that male masculinity was really kind of popping. Uh, that was the. That was Tarzan, and uh, I would have done terrible in the air. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he he represented the the new American man, and he's one of the he's one of the sort of great father figures of this country. That's when the country was really. How did so? How does Houdini become Houdini? I mean, is why is it that we we know his name versus you know? any other magician from that era no it's 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 a great question because i know many magicians today who are plagued they're kind of in the twilight of their career and they can't quite understand still why every five-year-old kid learns who houdini, houdini is, is but not you know i won't name any names but um some of these great people that i respect are kind of at the ends of their careers and they're they they're focused on legacy and they're like i don't get it you know i've done all these things and made all this money and all and but kids only know Houdini. And I, I think it just I think Houdini was in that era of these great figures that um as as America was on the rise and he he slots right in with like Babe Ruth and Albert Einstein and And is is part of that in response to the political and cultural climate at the time? Is I mean does has if you kind of look at the parallel of media um around politics and culture and technology, even cell phones and things, you can see it, It you know, the medium becoming the message in many respects. Has magic gone through that era too? I'm not sure I follow your question. Like his, it, is, it seems, so cultural and entertainment and, and media are in, in many respects a response to yeah. what is happening yeah. uh, in politics, in society, war, so on and so forth. And I'm curious if magic... If these magicians, I mean, was Houdini, you know, I'm not sure what was going on. I don't know politically if that affected uh, affected his rise. I, I think today uh, that that's certainly the case. In what way? I just think that people are now we're seeing the rise of of people wanting to experience live performance in theater. It's a return to like the more practical, and the magicians that are having great success today. Like uh, like Dan White in New York, he's got his show at the Nomad Hotel. Like these parlor shows where people can go and watch people 
do something with their two hands. That is not technologically yeah. related. It's fascinating in that uh, the front page of the New York Times in 1876, July 26th, I think it is, or something like that, um, there's this this new invention called the telephone that has, has you know, the first story about it. And, and the, I remember the piece said that, uh, you know, people will never leave their house again. They'll never go to a concert or a church or, you know, a show. Uh, they'll just live in their homes and that's how they'll communicate and experience everything. And there's a, a year later, the phonograph came out and, you know, and they were like, little boys will never have to learn how to read and right. will never go to churches. And, and it seems that the more technology comes about, the more we want to experience these things in person. I, and I think that's why we've had such success with immersive theater in the last 10 years. Because of, because of the response to technology? Yeah, yeah. And you have, to, you have to turn off your phone as you, you know, walk around Sleep No More or you know, do an escape room. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about, um, about your book. Um, what, how did the book come about? And, and what's the kind of, let's tell the listeners what the gist of it is. The book came about because it seemed like the the I, I was giving TED talks and and breaking magic down, and it just seemed let's let's put these into a a system for people that the seven ways that I break magic into its fundamental principles, and I think that people gain a lot more appreciation for for magic and all the work that goes into it when they when they see. You know, when they look at it at a grant on a granular level, and how? So, okay, when you look at the world we live in today, fake news, um, lies by politicians and the media, um, lots of deception. How can you apply the things that you have learned to that to understanding what is real and what is not, or does it not apply? I wish I could say it was uh, that I was an expert that that I had this miracle way that you could cut through all the BS. But um, but in the past, were there moments where we had these times of you know what's the, what was the Chung Ling Su? Is that right? Did Chung Ling Su. Chung Ling Su. Like I mean, how, yeah. I mean, there has to have been times in the in the past where this is you know come through where we've seen examples of. Uh, just sort of mass manipulation. Mass manipulation. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. I, I think if if what seems to be going on, if an individual is set on deceiving everyone, and you you put your mind to it, and you just and you keep at it, you're gonna you're gonna people want to believe. You know, people want to buy into these things. Is that part of the the theory with magic? Is that part of the reason it works? Is because we want to believe it works? Absolutely. Absolutely. And on the extreme, in the spectrum of magicians, there are some that do pretend to have superpowers all the time. And those are like mind readers and mentalists, and they actually infuriate the rest of the magicians a little bit. What do you mean mind readers and mentalists? They are the ones that say, I know what you're thinking, or what, how is it? They just, mentalists, many of them will claim basically 24-7 that they were born with this ability to, as you said, know what you're thinking and, and read your thoughts. And that kind of just rubs the rest of the magic community a little wrong a little bit uh because because we're like no you use the same tricks that we use you're just you've just crafted this character and you're you're not ever stepping off the stage you have this thing going 
this performance going all the time. And then you have, if you go even more extreme, there are, you know, basically frauds that when you look at people that um, are, are con men and they take you, you know, they prey on your emotions. You have the evangelists and the, the uh, you know, fortune tellers and tarot card readers and people and, and spiritualists who are basically using these tricks of the trade to, to work miracles. And, uh, you know, there's a great documentary that everyone should check out on Netflix, which is called An Honest Liar, which is about James Randi. And who is James Randi? James Randi is magician turned, uh, you know, head crusader against, um, he, he head, head debunker is the best way to put it. Okay. And, and, and James Randi famously for years and years and years had his million dollar challenge basically saying, if anyone can prove uh, scientifically past this test that there is uh, the existence of the supernatural or that you can pass this test and demonstrate you have ESP, I'll give you a million dollars. And no one's been able to do it. But, but magicians have always been the great debunkers because we know how all the tricks work. So, you know, back in the 19th century uh, or, or into, the, into the 20s when spiritualism is, is making its way through America uh, where, you know, this is like seances and contacting mm-hmm. your Contacting your, your the dead aunts. like Ouija boards. Exactly. And the table will rise up and the bell will start to ring. And it's make a, you know, rap three times if you can hear me and you hear these raps. And, and magicians have always known those tricks of pulling the strings and, you know, and raising the table with your leg. And Houdini would famously bust in on these seances or he would go incognito and then bust them up. And then even in 1926, Houdini testified before Congress to try to get spiritualism banned. Did he really? From, uh, from D.C. Wow. So, yeah, uh, check out uh, An Honest Liar about James Randi. And it's about how he would come on uh, late night TV shows just after one of these um, uh, ESP people would do something or spoon benders like Yuri Geller. And then he would expose how it's done to try to bring them down. Uh, but what's so interesting is that even after his team exposed one of the big uh, televangelists for having an earpiece. Mm. And, and, and what would the televangelist pretend to do? Uh, it, was, it was Popoff. I think it's Peter Popoff, if I re- recall. And he would get information. He would say, is this person in the audience? Does this person live at this address? Come forward, right? So, so, that's, he's, so, so that's the first deception. But then the harmful thing, <clears throat> which is what um, you know, these, these debunkers really rail against, is he would hold up his hand and put it on your forehead and say, you're healed. And you don't have to worry about the cancer anymore. And that is bad. And that's, that was that's just, the extreme crime. And people believed it, and that's those videos yeah. of like people wailing and crying. And, yeah, and it, not seeking medical attention. And the, and the, and someone is just in their ear. Yeah, there's and there's a lot of there's a lot of tricks. Um, and and basically, but what, what's fascinating is even after they exposed this man, the the sermon hall was filled the next night. And people want to believe. They want. They need to latch on to something like this. It seems like it's interesting, you know, when you look at media, um, in the media landscape, we always believed in the beginning of the internet that it would, and especially when media platforms started to arrive and when social media began 10 years ago, we believed that, that the, there would be, this would be the perfect opportunity for everyone to see everyone else's side. 
mm-hmm. that you would be able to not just pick up the New York Times if you're left leaning or the Wall Street Journal if you're right leaning or the New York Post or whatever that you would that you would see everything because it would it would be filtered to you in that way and it seems that because we want to believe the things we want to believe no one wants to see those things mm-hmm. and therefore they don't follow them and the algorithms don't you know uh, it seems it's like it, it, it's the same principles that apply to the magic tricks that you do. Uh, people are people are stubborn. It's very hard to convince someone that even when even when I hear an account of someone who did something, whether it's a magician or a, or a fortune teller, uh, and I explain you know how that uh, how that person did it. Uh, not the magicians, but, yeah, but <laughs> wait, the, you're allowed uh, to tell on fortune tellers, but not on magicians. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, because I, I, I can't, I can't reveal the technical secrets behind magic tricks. But uh, what's his name? Uh, you know, this guy drives me crazy. I got to say, um, the, the Hollywood Medium. Have you seen that show? No. His, his name? It's Tyler. Tyler. Maybe Tyler Henry. Tyler. Tyler something. He's in his early twenties. He's on the E Channel, and he's Hollywood Medium, and he has these celebrities on, and he's. Uh, you know, revealing impossible things about him, and I just want to be like, oh, guys. Do you believe that? that <laughs> do you believe that there that you can? People, there are people that can talk to the dead, or do you believe? I've never. That? I'm. I please prove me wrong. I, I'm dying to meet someone who can. I, I just. I don't believe it I, because I. I've lived for decades now knowing the tricks of the trade. I will say that the one area where I, I think there is, um there's energy that I don't understand is when it comes to Eastern medicine. And I still think there's a great divide between Western and Eastern medicine. And there's all sorts of magic that happens around the chi and the life force that I don't quite understand. In what way? Uh, just in, you know, I've seen chi masters controlling, you know, putting, putting electric currents through them and controlling that sort of pulse and, uh, and I think, you know, I think there's magic to acupuncture and, and, you know, a lot of these systems that we don't quite that are just, grasp in the West. That yeah. are not explainable. Do you, yeah. do you believe, um, and this is totally a, 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 a rerouted question, I'm sorry, but do you believe that you believe in like God or anything? Do you, that there's some higher power or? No, it's an appropriate question. Um, in a and the reason I would I, say the reason I, would I say ask this is no right now. <laughs> no right now. But the reason I ask yeah. is because a lot of scientists and people that who are tr- trying to explain the unexplainable do not that I speak yeah. to. Most yeah, people yeah. that I, speak I think to. I'm in that camp as well. And it, it, a, a magician's predominantly in that I don't, camp. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Um, Has because I've met a lot of Christian magicians that you know that are that are replicating the miracles and trying to share you know. God's work with people by demonstrating it. And has, uh, has your viewpoint on it changed as you've, uh, done more magic over the years or has it not? Affected it's, it's hard it? to track that. I, I think you're probably right that over the decades of doing this, I, I fall into the camp of, of scientists, uh, who are, uh, who don't believe, but it, it's hard to track a moment where I have, have switched sides. You are listening to inside the hive with Nick Bilton. So I got a call from my editor last week saying that Away Travel was going to be our sponsor this week, and they wanted to send me a carry-on suitcase that they make for me to check out. And it just arrived in the mail, and I opened it up, and I'm not kidding here. The first thing that came out of my mouth was, holy shit, this is amazing. Uh, Excuse my French. So 
traditional suitcases, you know, the wheels break, they're kind of difficult to lug around. If you overfill them, there's problems, so on and so forth. What away travel has done is they've essentially reinvented the carry-on suitcase. The suitcases are made out of this premium German polycarbonate that is incredibly impactful. They have this patent-pending compression system, so if you overfill your suitcase, as we all do, it actually stretches to allow for all these extra clothes. Uh, they have a TSA-approved combination lock that's built in that you cannot lose, because we all know we buy those stupid little combination locks at the airport, forget the code, lose them, whatever it is. One of the coolest things that it has, which made me curse out loud, is the fact that they have there's this little built-in USB charger so that you can charge your iPhone up to five times uh, while you're traveling. And who has not been stuck at the airport with a dead cell phone? So I got to say, this is an incredible suitcase. It looks really cool. I cannot wait. I'm going on a trip next week. I literally cannot wait to use this suitcase. It's amazing. Uh, Again, it's made by Away Travel. You have to check it out. They're offering a deal this week. To Inside the Hive listeners, uh, you get $20 off a suitcase if you visit awaytravel.com slash hive. Once again, that's awaytravel.com slash hive. And then you can use the promo code hive. You know how to spell it, H-I-V-E. It's uh, Check it out. Go to their Twitter, their at away, their Instagram at away. You can see some of this really cool luggage. It comes in all different colors, uh, different sizes, the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium carry-on. You can get it in pink, black, aluminum. Um, But yeah, it's it's a a really phenomenal suitcase. Uh, I, I definitely implore you to check it out. All right, so I want to come. I want to come forward to today and some of the things you're working on now. But I, I do you have? An, I, I loved that story before. Do you have another uh, another magic story before oh, great we magic story. before we move on to uh, to the 20th century? Well, there's there's been yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite subjects is the way that magicians have been involved in war efforts. Okay. So there are a few salient examples. Um, in the 1850s, I believe, again, I'm, I'm so bad with dates, but I think it was the 1850s when, when Napoleon III sends Jean Robert Houdin down to Algeria. So I'll tell you who Houdin is. Houdin is the, that's where Houdini gets his name because he was the father of modern magic. That's what we say. And Houdin was the first person that made magic a theatrical evening performance. And people would come to his theater in Paris and they would dress to the nines and enjoy uh, theatrical presentations as opposed to magic being like juggling on the streets before. Mm -hmm. Right. And Houdin was the son of a, uh, of a watchmaker. So he built all these amazing automata, these robots that could choose playing cards and, um, and you know, robots that were trapeze artists that could swing freely. And that looked like robots? Unbelievable. They look like, uh, well, some of them look like little um, ventriloquist dolls, and some of them are just sit on a table and they move. And yeah, um, mm-hmm. but then there are, if you've ever seen um, like the, the film The Illusionist with Edward Norton, uh, you could see the orange tree, which is which is a a tree that would have lush green leaves and then suddenly oranges would grow out of it hmm. and uh and that was meant to look real and I'm sure that audiences in the 19th century thought that was real 
Anyway, uh, Robert Houdin, the great uh, founding father of all this, uh, he's sent by Napoleon III to, this is horribly imperialistic, but to like quell the Algerian rebellion by demonstrating to those people that the, the magic of the West was more powerful and that they, sh they should stop following all these uh, shaman and healers that were like causing the uprising. So, so he goes down to do a number of performances. Um, and one of the great stories that comes out of that is uh, something called the light and heavy chest. And that's one of his inventions. And this was a, a wooden box with a metal handle that he would lift up and down freely on stage. It was quite light. And then he would call up the burliest tribesmen and say, lift up the box. And he wouldn't be able to. And, um, excuse me. <clears throat> and basically what Robert Houdin did is that he put a, a, a large electromagnet underneath the stage. Hmm. So that metal handle, it made it impossible to lift the box up. Hmm. And then as a, as a exclamation point on this trick, he would send a shock through that, uh, through that metal handle and the, the man would go running from the stage. But this is, you know, this is a, a great example of the way that magicians embrace technology before the public really knows what it is. Mm -hmm. And he was on top of electromagnetism, on top of electricity. Uh, and today, when I, when I see a talk at a conference and somebody is, you know, levitating a disc through, you know, magnetic levitation or, uh, you know. So did his, did those war efforts work for, uh, with him or, you know, when Napoleon sent him down there, did, did they, did they change the, I, I, I you know what? I confess, I don't really know the, the outcome <laughs> of that. I've always been fascinated by the magic story of it. Um, um, I'll tell you, I mean, I'll tell you a more direct, uh, story number two is, um, is World War Two. Okay. And you have, Jasper Maskelyne, who is the the son of Neville Maskelyne, this you know the celebrated magic family, and he gets um, acquired to to help with the war effort with the Allies, and he and he puts his magic gang together, and a this magic gang? magic gang, wow, and it was basically a camouflage unit, and the and and the U.S. had its own version of this called the Ghost Army, but this was this kind of whimsical era. Of, uh, you know, and this would lead into the, you know, James Bond kind of era where um, they were, they would use inflatable tanks and inflatable airplanes to make it seem like the, the, the unit was bigger, that they had more military presence, or they would cover up tanks with, with um, panels to make it look like a truck. They would, they were fooling a lot of aerial photography. There's, there's one story that, most people think it's apocryphal, but it's just fun to tell anyway, which is that in order to stop the Germans from bombing Alexandria, he turned out the lights of the city and then turned on spotlights down the river and that the Germans bombed that instead. So that's kind of misdirection on a global scale. So they, so they, this, this magic team figured out all these different things and applied it to, uh, to stopping and helping the war efforts. That's, that's so fascinating. That's right. Uh, do we still do that today, or we are we are we smarter or dumber? Or I I I know some magicians have who have spoken with the CIA about things, but what um, things? <laughs> I don't I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm waiting for the CIA to call me. I think it'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> 
<laughs> and is it, is this the point in time where magic starts to kind of become move onto the screen too? Is is that what happens then, or is it a little further? It's a little further in the in the eighties. You have um, Doug Henning, the Canadian magician, who um, who Ivan Reitman collaborated with, the uh, you know producer director and. And and Doug really opened up that world of of TV magic, um, and you know, Mark Wilson also had TV specials, and then David Copperfield just you know yeah, was, was gonna, the man. I was going to yeah. ask how did in the same way that Houdini became Houdini, how did David Copperfield become David Copperfield? Well, it's a great comparison. Both of those, they're both so charming, and you know the the biggest personalities on stage, and and David. Um, you know, like everyone else started when he was a little kid and, uh, you can, you can see early videos of him and early. Is it, is it mostly that it's not that you're a better magician, but that you're a better marketer? Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. I mean, David, David is, is talented. Uh, Houdini was a card magician and was not very good at it. So that's a clear case of someone who, who figured out uh, that his handcuff act was, you know, really capturing the attention of people. And then all those stunts of being locked in prison and yeah, those are all marketing stunts. Um, but, but, but Copperfield is, you know, he was, he was an amazing front of house character and he, he knew what people wanted to see those magic specials. I mean, I, I want everyone sat on the living room rug and tuned into those. And he's in Vegas now, right? He's in Vegas, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's fast forward to today. So you have a, a show on ABC uh, called Deception. How did that come about? Well, I'll insert one quick final last example, which is in the 1950s, uh, John Mulholland, a celebrated New York magician, was picked up by the CIA to help train operatives there. And that was you know, largely to, to come up with ways to assassinate Fidel Castro. Well, how was how how do you apply uh, being a magician to assassinating Fidel Castro? Well, he he came up with all these methods and basically made this handbook that shows how to palm you know vials of poison and drop them in a drink as you walk by, and how how operatives can communicate with each other and disappear around corners, and it's all um, manipulating uh, human perception. Hmm. So this is what largely inspired me to create this show, Deception, that um, well, Chris Fedak, again, our brilliant writer, created the show. But this is an idea that I've had for a long time, which is to have a magician join the FBI or the CIA or the police force. And, um, and I was already consulting on Blindspot on NBC. That's, that's where you know, Jamie Alexander plays this woman covered head to toe in tattoos, which is basically a, a treasure map. And we, that's a Greg Berlanti show, you know, who's mayor of TV town right now. And, uh, that team, Martin Garrow, the blind spot showrunner and Chris Fiedek and Greg and I created this show deception. And so tell us some, what, what are some of the things that the characters, how do you, how magic plays a role in, uh, in solving these cases, well, he's uh, he's a fallen celebrity. He gets into trouble in the first episode. He he and his you know you find out that he has a twin brother, which we we don't make that a big reveal at the end. We wanted to distance ourselves from the Prestige, which is an amazing movie. Mm. Um, and you know 
he loses his show. His brother's in jail, accused of murder. They have to work their way back into the public's favor. And yeah, he he teams up with the FBI, our magician Cameron Black, and he can walk into a room as as I can, I suppose, in real life, and we see different angles and we see different opportunities and we know how people think. And uh there's there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that we structure crimes and bank heists and robberies around magic and kind of uh the writers are always asking me like either like how does this episode revolve around a principle of illusion or sometimes you know they'll come up with the the character arc and we figure out how to reverse engineer magic into that and do you take um any of these that are actual actually real like do you take these as a as things that have happened or are they all made up Oh, the, the, the writers sometimes take inspiration from, from real things. Our, our second episode um, was inspired by that event from last year, that kind of that grisly assassination where somebody was sprayed in the face with that toxin. This was the yep. in, did it happen in Malaysia? It, it, yeah, but it was Kim Jong's. Yeah, it was, it was, it was North Korea. Yeah. Uh, I think it was cousin, in Singapore's brother, yeah. airport or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And, Th- that those people thought they were on a reality show hmm. and that they were participating in something completely innocuous. So we took that as, as inspiration as a way that, you know, there's something we call dual reality and magic, which is where you, you have an audience member doing your bidding. That sounds so nefarious, but it sounds like the Trump administration <laughs> and they think that they are, um, doing something else. They think that they're participating in a different part of the trick. Uh, so that's, you know, that's an example of a, of a crime that is based on, a, you know, on deception. And when you look back through, I, I, one of my favorite bank robbery stories is if you, uh, you, you probably know this one, but there was a guy who, um, and I may screw up some of the details, but the, the gist of it is, is correct. But he, um, he went on Craigslist. Yes, I love this story. Yeah, he. Uh, do you want to tell it? Because you'll probably tell it better. Well, no, you got it. It's a, it was up in Seattle. Yeah. And, and yeah, go yeah, ahead. Go, no, 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 you. Because I, I thought it was actually somewhere in the Midwest. So you, your turn. Well, I, I think we both remember the important things, which is that he goes on Craigslist and he says, you know, for twenty bucks an hour or something, show up on this street corner wearing i don't know what it is it was wearing white hat it was wearing uh yeah wearing your full like painter's gear white hat white suit uh painting suit yeah uh and uh and he went in robbed a bank in that same outfit yeah uh and walked out and disappeared disappeared uh into the crowd and then got on it like an inner tube and like tried to escape down the river in a, well, in, he, in a raft. No, he escaped. Right? But the reason that he, the only reason that he got caught was because it was a homeless guy who was living behind the bank and he had seen him scoping the place out a few days earlier and for some reason had written down his license plate. And so, you know, the cops thought, okay, we're never going to figure this one out. And then they, the homeless guy was like, Hey, I wrote this down and it turned out it was him. Yeah. It's a, it's a, perfect example of uh of deception it would have worked it's so great do you ever think like oh i should try this i should try to rob this bank in this way i could probably pull this off or? i'm always i'm always daydreaming about stuff like that but <laughs> i i try to separate the what i do on stage from real life so can you tell us i know you can't tell us how magic how magicians do their tricks but like can you tell us can you give us any kind of i think you know 
any explanation of something? Like, how did Houdini get out of the box? Was he picking the locks, or was he? Were they not locked, or like what? I'll say this: we we prepare for everything, and we have many many backup plans. We call them outs. We can get out of anything, and and then we play the presentation office spontaneous. You know, so. I don't have a specific example for Houdini, but I'll make one up because I'm, again, I'm not that familiar with, with Houdini's life, but I'm sure he did this, which is someone from the audience coming forward and saying, try these handcuffs that I made from home, you know, like, um, I think people say that the mirror cuffs, which was like a, this, you know, celebrated time when Houdini got out of cuffs, you know, People say that was just a setup marketing stunt. But the thing is that this is what we do is we're prepared for things ahead of time and then we play them off as spontaneous. So the, so the guy who comes up with the handcuffs I made from home, is, does that person work for Houdini or does that person in this, really have In this made-up example, yeah. that, yes, I, 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 I can see that happening. Someone who Here, I'll, I'll tell you, this is one of my favorite stories. Okay. Um, this involves uh, a, a story here in Hollywood and um, a, a director asked me to come over to his house and uh you know I, I work on a lot of film and tv projects as a consultant and so i was asked to come over and um and and, and teach some the way a magician would think right mm-hmm. so my friend blake and i came over and we we showed up late we were 15 minutes late to the house uh we, we apologized that we couldn't find the place but it's okay because once you start doing magic tricks everybody's happy were there a lot, a lot of people there, or is it just the director? It was just the, the, a director and an actor. Got it. And we, we finished doing tricks in the living room, and uh, the director turns to me and says, okay, show me your, your coolest trick. And I turn to my friend Blake, and we're like, well, we just did all of our stuff, but we could probably come up with something. So do you have a driveway that we can go into? Is there an outdoor space we can go into? And he says, well, I have a, I have a lovely backyard. Should we go there instead? And we agreed. So we headed out to the back. And I said to the um, director, name any playing card. And he said, five of hearts. And then my friend turned to the actor and said, point anywhere you want in the backyard. And he pointed at uh, like a row of bushes that was kind of two o'clock from where we were standing. We're standing on the back veranda looking at this into the backyard. And so we headed over and I said to the guys, dig into the mulch at the base of, of the bushes there and see what you find. And they found a folded up playing card and it was the five of hearts. And how do we do it? Well, because this was like a magic lesson, yeah. I pulled out my iPad and played a video that, that taught them what we did. And basically, we were there three hours earlier burying 52 playing cards in that guy's backyard. <laughs> and then we played it off as spontaneous. We purposely... You knew he didn't have a driveway. We, yeah, that, 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 we, let's start at the top. We, we showed up late to the house on purpose so that we could say, sorry, we, we couldn't find it. We've never been here before. Mm-hmm. We started planting those seeds. We waited to do one... We waited for him to ask us to do one last trick. We wait, and, and we were like, uh, we don't really have anything, but we can try something. And, but it was his idea. Yeah. We didn't say we have one final thing. So if he hadn't have asked, would you have been like, eh, should we do one more? A- absolutely. Hey. And we can always pivot because here's, yeah. here's the thing, and this gets to the driveway, right? Uh, 
I suggested the driveway, and he suggested the backyard. And what if he'd have said, okay, exactly. let's do the driveway? We would have gone out there, and I would have said, you know what? This isn't really working. Can we try your backyard instead? And we never tell you what the end of the story is. We can always pivot to get where we want to go. Because if we tell you what the end is, then we have to follow that direct path. So so then your friend Blake had to remember where all 52 cards yeah, were? Yeah, we, um, we documented on a map where every, every card was. Did he look at the map, or did he just remember? No, we remembered. Got but it. there's also uh, something else I'm not telling you, which I'll let you... <laughs> you guys can read the book and see. There's part two of this trick. What's part two? No, you can't that, do that. You've got to, you've got, can you give us just a, a preview, like a trailer of part two? The trailer is that we wanted the director to go out into the backyard and try to find the other 51 cards and not be able to find them. Hmm. That's that's the trailer. And ha- so, um, I'm sorry, I have a few questions about the trick. How did, was he home? Do you, you know? Like, what would you have done if he was home? Or if he we we me? we were in cahoots with with his assistant. We were let into that. Got house. it. Got yeah. it. Got it. But I've I've definitely sneaked into people's houses before and to prepare for things. And you know, we you... we like to we like to hide playing cards. Uh, I like to put them um, under the uh, the insoles of people's shoes so that you're like. You know, you're walking around with a three of hearts, and I just I wait for an opportunity to to do a trick with the three of hearts. How do you get those shoes off? Do you knock them out, or uh... <laughs> no? You'll make that. You'll make a, a second three of hearts disappear, and then you'll say check your shoe. So like we, you know, we we wait a long time for these things to. Do you uh, as you're waiting, are you like filled with excitement, like oh my god, I'm gonna pull the card out of the <laughs> yeah, shoe? You have to. I'll tell you. Okay, I'll tell you the best trick I ever did. I was about to ask, what's the best trick you've ever done? I w- you wait decades for something like this to happen, and I was performing for uh, an investment bank or a hedge fund or something like that in Philadelphia. And we're having drinks the night before at, at a bar and they're all crowding around and I'm doing sleight of hand. And I take the opportunity. I mentioned, I kind of, I'm always looking for angles. We take the opportunity. I take the opportunity to, uh, to slip the two of clubs into this guy's right jacket pocket. Sleight of hand, slip it. Yeah, we call that put pocketing. Okay. Okay. So I compliment him on his on the fabric of his coat, which kind of allows me to, you know, invade his personal space. I touch him on the shoulder and grab his collar and I say, This is a really nice jacket, and I slip the two of clubs in his pocket. So now if I were truly if I were better prepared for that moment, I would have had a second two of clubs. Mm-hmm. do a card trick, make that two of clubs disappear, and all of a sudden, lo and behold, it's in your pocket. But I didn't. I didn't have one. So I decide, okay, I'm going to do a trick with the two of spades. Close enough. When I finish the two of spades trick, I'll say, you know, the two of spades has a sister card, the two mm-hmm. of clubs, check your pocket. Mm-hmm. But I don't even get that far. I open the cards, and this, you know, owlish banker, investment banker who wasn't having any of my performances that night he goes all right magic boy you think you're so good make the two of clubs appear (laughs) and it's as you said in that moment i'm like oh my god oh my god oh my god like do not blow this do not blow this and you can't rush it because remember what i said at the top we were talking about two impossible with the astronaut oh but come on couldn't you have just been like checking your pocket if you do it too fast it's too impossible and and the audience will go to the easiest solution which is he was, was in already on it. maybe maybe yeah. he was in on it. That's yeah. a good call, or it was already there, and maybe it was already there and he got lucky. So instead, I said, "All right, two of clubs," 
and I fan through the deck of cards and I pretend to take out the two of clubs because I don't have one and I vanish it with a flourish. How do you pretend? Does he not see that it's the two of spades or something? Or I just, I, I don't think I just, I don't, I didn't show them the face. Sometimes you can flash the yep. two of spades or you could have a, you know, a three and cover up one of the pips or something. But, um, and then I made it disappear as if it were palmed in my hand. And I came about a foot away from the guy's jacket with my hand. And I kind of made this magical gesture as I released the card into the ether towards his jacket. And you have to do that. You have to give them just enough to believe that, that that card can travel, that maybe there's, maybe I was really good at throwing it in at that moment, or maybe there was a string that pulled it in or, yeah, I don't know. That's where your brain starts to lie to you. And, and, and was, was you and know, was the Eilish banker impressed? No, he, he walked away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, you were like, holy shit. Yeah. Um, what's your, uh, um, what's your favorite trick that you've ever seen or performed? I, I really love, um, I really love Penn and Teller's bullet catch trick back to that dangerous. Is trick. that the one where they catch it in their mouth or yeah, they, they fire at each other from opposite sides of the stage. And, and how does that one, did, did they show how that one works? No, no, no. That one's, that's, that's a, a secret closely guarded. Really? Yeah. How is it that you don't have like some jerk that's like, I'm just going to go through the magic thing and they become, you know, they learn all the tricks and the trades. I think they're out there. And I think that magicians try to get them to take stuff down and throw lawyers at them, uh, especially at that, at that level. There, there was a, uh, speaking of Teller and this exact problem, um, there was a case in the last few years where a guy in Europe, I, I, I think he was, I think it was in Denmark, uh, basically replicated Teller's famous uh, shadows trick. And basically... What's the trick? He's been doing it for decades. He has a a vase of flow- uh, with flowers in it, a rose. Mm. It's basically a single rose with a long stem. And he has a, a, a light cast a shadow of that rose on a piece of paper behind. And Teller goes up to the shadow with a knife and he slices at the rose... Uh, at the shadow, and then the real-life rose sheds a petal. Hmm. It's beautiful. And this guy basically, um, you know, it wasn't about figuring out how it was done. It was, if you're if you're smart and you can engineer something, you can come up with a dozen ways to do that. Mm. Um, but he came up with a system and decided to market it and say, I'm selling this now. And Teller, you know, Teller sued him and won. And and a couple things happened here. Teller was smart enough to copyright his trick as a pantomime, as a play. Because you can't copyright tricks, right? That is the problem that plagues all of magic. And that is why we all magicians kind of hate each other. <laughs> because there's no intellectual property that can protect an illusion. Just like you can't copyright a joke or a dance move. If it's not written in a tangible medium, you can't. But a pantomime it. trick is different. I I, you know, I think he he turned it into a a written. He turned it into Got a it. play. Got it. Um, and and was successful. And this guy, you know, pulled it from the shelves, so to speak. Um, but but it's a it's a problem because all the all the magicians think that their peers are stealing from them. I mentioned that we're we're just building on these old tricks. But but if you see a trick. You know the 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 backyard 
whatever the card was, two, yeah. of, two of hearts or whatever. Um, uh, that's not a trick that you've done for the first time. That's a trick that's been done 5,000 times by 5,000 people, right? It is, aren't you, isn't part of it that you're kind of in collaboration in many respects or is it? You're in collaboration. You know, that's, that's like a massive index. Like I could have all 52 cards under this table right now. And I say, name. I was hoping yeah, that you yeah. were going to, we were yeah. going to go into the garden. You're going to be like, name a card. And um, it was under my kid's trampoline. Yeah. We'll see what happens. <laughs> um, so yeah, these are, these are ways of thinking and magicians will write books on this. And basically when, when they come up with a trick, they'll perform it for a while and they'll make a name for themselves performing it. And then they will give it to the magic community and put it in a book or put it in a DVD or a download. Got it. And when you do that, you're basically saying, this was mine. Mm. You need to call this the mm-hmm. Kwong backyard trick and know that I came up with this and maybe give me $30 for it. Hmm. Um, but um, so in that way, it's collaborative, but there are a lot of tricks that have never been published and are trade secrets and people can still you know, replicate those. And uh, just wrapping up with a, f- a few last questions. Has there ever been a trick that you've seen that you haven't been able to figure out? Oh, certainly. Um, cause I, I've, I mentioned I, you get burned and you're like, and, and, and that happens all the time. And, and I have corrected that problem and I'll call up my friends and be like, please, please tell me how this was done. And they'll make me, <laughs> we call it the 24 hour rule and they'll make me wait 24 hours and then they'll tell me. Um, but I'm trying to think if there's something out there right now that I don't know. You know, often I can come up with my own way of doing it. Got it. But but I um, I don't know specifically what they're doing. What was one that you had to, you had to call a friend and wait 24 hours to figure out? Um, like, what's the coolest magic trick that you've ever seen? Oh gosh. I don't know. It's if all. You have to pick like, one. If you if you're like banished to a desert island and you can only do one magic trick there for the rest of your life, even if it's someone else's, what is it? Um, I think. Okay, you know what? This is a great thing to talk about. I love David Copperfield's thirteen, which was just in the news because the press had a field day about how. He's in a lawsuit and had to reveal how that was done. What was the? But, but let me tell you yeah. the effect. Okay. Before we, you know, talk about the secret, um, the effect is amazing. Which is that he gets thirteen random people, and he's done this trick thousands of times. I think tens of thousands of times because he toured the world for decades. He gets thirteen random people, truly random, brings them up on stage, seats them on a platform, which gets raised up it's covered by a cloth gets raised up they're all given flashlights to hold and you can see the flashlights are on and then you know he vanishes them all the cloth is whisked away and they're gone and they're immediately in the back of the house and they're all holding their flashlights and waving them and it's like it's beautiful it's incredible and did they know that how they got there they know and 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 David would appeal to them and say, please don't reveal how this is done. And I think he would give them, you know, he would do some sleight of hand for them backstage and take photos yeah. with them and say, look, you know, let's, pr- never let's made preserve it out. this. I, you know, people, people would 
occasionally write about it and then you know his people would go and try to get it taken down and but but for the most part people were cool about it mm. which is which is awesome yeah you know um and and i think that that that's one of the best tricks i've ever seen so so what happened recently so he was someone well i don't want to do my part in like revealing but it's all over the news but basically um somebody got hurt moving from allegedly yeah from moving from backstage to the back of the house very quickly mm. and um you know they're saying that Copperfield was at fault for for the conditions of that you know floor and the guy slipped and um I, I that's that's bad for the trick. It's such a beautiful trick. And did uh did they still in the lawsuit or was it is it I think they're still in it, yeah. Got it. Yeah. So if I want to know how that one works, I have to It's in it was in the Hollywood reporter this week. I mean Um Uh all right, so last question for you. Um if there was one trick that you like one trick that you wanna do that you haven't done yet. Are there tricks like that? Are there is there something out there that you would like love to? It's actually a double last question. Uh, would are there tricks out there that you would that you would like to do that you haven't figured out how to pull off yet? Uh, maybe you can't tell me that. But the other question is, if you had the opportunity to kind of like go work for like the CIA or the FBI consulting or even the Trump administration, would you do it? Or would it de- depend on what the case was? Um, I'd like to make the, make the Hollywood sign disappear. I think why no, not? That's a good idea. I mean, we, yeah, I said, this is all kind of generational. It kind of oscillates whether we're doing big stuff and small stuff. And we're in a, we're in a golden age of, of small parlor shows right now. Be fun to make something big disappear and make it, you know, cell phone proof that no one can, even from all angles, no one can figure it out. So if you're an illusion builder, call me because I don't know how to do that yet. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I love I love puzzles and magic and how I fuse them together. So I would like to do something with a chess chess board. I'm like, you know, started starting to put that together in my head. I would definitely go collaborate with the CIA. I don't with the FBI. I don't see. I'm not a I'm not a big fan of our president, but I see enough of a separation in departments there that I think I could, you know, I could aid a bureau like that and not have a problem with it. So if, if Donald Trump called you up and said, can you make Stormy Daniels disappear? You would be like, mm, not so much. I, I, I wouldn't play any part of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait, there was one last question I was going to ask you. I forgot to ask about the crosswords you do, right? Yes. So you, you create crosswords for the New York times and other places. Does magic play a role in how you do those or the way you kind of, the, the, the thinking behind it? Uh, they're, they're very closely related. Yes. Um, because a good puzzle has twists and turns and misdirection in it. And you think that one thing's going on and then, you know, there's that aha moment where you, you figure out, Oh, this is what this puzzle's about. And, um, of course in magic, you don't want that aha moment. You don't want people to figure out the secrets, but I think that you take people on a same, a similar journey of over the course of a trick of here's what's happening and now I'm going to twist it. Um, and, and what I, what I try to instill into my shows, which, you know, my, my, my performances are all about, um, uh, collaborative puzzle solving and, and, and making it fun for the audience is this aha moment, right? And Will Shorts, the editor of the New York times puzzle, uh, the, great guru of puzzles and a wonderful friend and mentor 
he always said to me that the aha moment does two things. It it's this moment where the puzzle solver unlocks a puzzle and feels smart mm-hmm. for having cracked the code. Yeah. But they also, in that moment, simultaneously respect the puzzle creator for having come up with something clever. <laughs> and I think that's a sweet spot that I try to, and I try to hit that in in, in storytelling too. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, I mean, I mean film's all about let's let the f- audience figure out the next scene before it happens. Exactly. But yeah. yeah, and I and I remember watching. There have been a number of films recently, but yeah, you know, like I think the the first. Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr. That one, I think there was no way for the audience to figure out the the hmm. the mystery, and mm. I was, and and I didn't like that. You know, you got to dangle it for um, the audience to kind of piece it together. All right, so uh, just to wrap up, you had all these amazing stories of old mu- magicians and and so on. You wanna you wanna end with another one, a final? I'll, I'll yeah, it's something to think about. Um, the the great Dutch magician Tommy Wonder. Uh, has this great quote about misdirection, which I think really applies to the political sphere today. And that is that misdirection is the art of giving people something of greater interest. So it's not just snapping your fingers and saying, look over here, but it's creating something interesting that will draw their attention so if I'm going to, uh, if I want to steal something out of one of my left pocket, I might reach up with my right hand and make a coin appear. So often one magic trick is the misdirection for the next trick. Mm. So, you know, I think that's, that's how misdirection works. I think that the, the democratic party could really, uh, could really work on that. <laughs> yeah. But it's not just walking on stage and dropping a bunch of, of yeah pots to clang on the stage where everybody looks over it's, it's a trick it's it's a trick it's giving something uh something of greater interest well this has been of great interest to me this has been a fascinating conversation where can people follow you and see the show and all that stuff uh, i'm on twitter david kwong that's k-w-o-n-g uh deceptions on abc it's uh sunday nights at 10 o'clock uh we're after american idol it's a really fun packed night and uh you know it's a blast. I hope you guys tune in. Uh, and I am now going to go and Google YouTube all the magic tricks that, I, that I'm wondering about, specifically the astronaut in space. Thank and you so and much. And I'm going to go bury some playing cards in your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> I'll turn around and pretend I'm not looking. Thank you. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Back here with none other than John Kelly. John, pleasure Hi, as always. It's great to be here. Uh, it's always great to be here with you, my friend. Uh, of course. So um, I, I thought that was a fascinating conversation. I've always been intrigued by the whole concept of magic and magicians and people wanting to believe and so on. But I love the whole spies thing, which I think is a perfect segue into my feature this week. It, it is edited. a good segue, too. Nick. It's also a, um, a very Silicon Valley-esque thing because it's uh, it's an example of how you can use a technology, even one as... Um, as seemingly sort of primitive as magic uh, for for potentially nefarious uh, uh, results, which is what Silicon Valley seems to be doing these days. But you wrote an excellent story about um, uh, spooks in the valley, and um, and they're everywhere. It sounds like right, and, and there's kind of no way to to, to hunt them down, and um, and companies kind of don't know what to do about it. We're all fucked. Well, so 
Yeah. So I, uh, I must have been um, eight months ago or something like that. I was talking to a CEO of one of the big tech companies, and they said to me, you know, I sometimes look around and think to myself, are there Russian and Chinese spies that work for me, and I just don't know it, and they're, you know, they're stealing data and learning how the system works, and maybe even building some of the systems to ensure that their counterparts back in their countries can can get in. And and I thought, wow, that's an intriguing idea. How is that even possible? Has that ever happened before? And and I started doing a bunch of reporting, and I spoke to John Markov, who was a veteran reporter from the New York Times for decades, and a bunch of other people. And it turns out that there have been spies in Silicon Valley for for many, many, many years. Um, trying to recruit engineers to get information in the early days in the 70s and 80s it was of course you know they were trying to steal chip designs from intel and they were working on weapon technology which was what silicon valley used to do and then it kind of fell off for a while but now with the advent of artificial intelligence it it appears that they are back um, and that not only are there Russian and Chinese and North Korean spies likely working at companies like Twitter and Facebook and places like that. But uh, there are also domestic ones like NSA and CIA and FBI um, that are, that could be, you know, posing as Apple employees or Google employees um, right next to real engineers. And it's also uh, tricky, too, right, because a lot of these companies now do business with the U.S. government um, in terms of cl- cloud storage and, and, and you know, uh, other sort of B two B ways of working with the government. Well, what's what's interesting is is it's like in many aspects it's very similar to the way the government works. You have all these government agencies, and and this is in in my book American Kingpin. We saw this happen where you have the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, the Homeland Security, IRS that are all kind of hunting for one person, but none of them want to work together. And I think that what's so fascinating about the relationship between Silicon Valley and these these essential spook uh, outlets like the CIA and something is that on one hand they're working together, you know, like Amazon is working with the Department of Defense right now to build AI technologies and so is Google, um, you know, working with different governments. But at the same time, uh, they're also when, for example, the FBI uh, um, wants to get into a cell phone, Apple won't let them in without a, a warrant. And even then, sometimes there's, you know, there's lots of issues that come up. And and so, you know, in, in one room, they're they're all collaborating. In another room, they're kind of going at each other um, in uh, in not so nice ways, which makes perfect sense. You know, if you're if you're running the FBI, and God knows who's running it uh, these days, it's, it seems like it's all over the place. But mm-hmm. if you're running the FBI and you want to get into a cell phone because of a terrorism case and Apple won't let you in, what better way to figure out how to get in than to have an agent go undercover, right. get a job there, and understand how the engineers and you're you're, uh, are you're making a real life um, uh, reference here to the sort of San Bernardino uh, imbroglio where um, Apple caught a lot of flack for for um, I think on a human level it, it seemed insincere that they wouldn't that they didn't want to turn over this data, but but um, they know they're de- you know on a, on a deeper one the point you're making is they know what they're dealing with. Um, when they turn it over, you know, and yeah, they have a lot to be concerned yeah. with. No, and it's it's um especially so one so it's one thing to you know be able to kind of unlock a phone, uh, and I'm sure China would want to know how to do that too. Um, but I think it's another thing. Uh, Russia probably wouldn't want to know. They just kill the people they don't like. They accidentally fall out of a 12 story building. Um, but but 
uh, on a deeper level, when you start to look at the AI that people are building, um, you could it seems it makes a lot of sense why uh, why there are definitely people working in the valley that are um, are doing this stuff. So. Nick, what, what uh, country uh, scares the bejesus out of um, tech executives the most? I think China is pretty scary. Um, I think that people from the people I spoke to, they kind of look at Russia as kind of just like thug-like in many ways. It's, um, it's a why. lot of prop – yeah, I wonder why. It's a lot of propaganda. Um, you know, I think you know what's so fascinating with the discussion I just had with David Wong about how – you know, the reason magic works is because people want to believe is in, in the same, you know, reporting I've done where I've spoken to uh, folks in Russia or, or who have left Russia, they want to believe that the country is more powerful, even though they know that the, it's just a facade that, that, um, that Putin is putting, Putin's putting on with his, with the things that he's doing, um, and the propaganda on social media and so on and so forth. But, but I think the big fear is China. Mm. Um, and, and I've heard this from, from people all over the place where they talk about the fact that, um, you know, it is a, uh, it's a scary country. They are, you know, President G is, is very, very smart, very uh, understanding of power dynamics of the West of, of the opportunity he has with Trump in power with, uh, with Russia and the West and Brexit and everything. And, uh, and he like, Putin, like folks in Silicon Valley, unlike Trump, um, uh, recognizes that the future of uh, of the world of warfare, of, of economics and everything is artificial intelligence. And there's a really interesting little anecdote about him. Every year he does his, his State of the Union kind of address from his office, uh, and it's posted on YouTube and, and other social sites. And there's a game that a lot of people play. Is, he's a, an avid reader, um, President Xi, and... Um, they're, the game people play is they look at the bookshelf, the bookshelves around him in in the videos to to see what it is he's he's interested in that year. And uh, and last year the big thing was there were a few uh, artificial intelligent books. Um, and uh, and he's you know he sees it as the future. And China has absolutely no qualms uh, stealing IP uh, yeah. from us. And so you know yeah, that is one of the things that Donald Trump is correct about. Um, although it's not. Uh not that it's necessarily a sincere position that he holds, but um, uh, but but by the way, you know, um, we would steal IP in their shoes too, and that's um, that that's just called business competition in this in this culture to some degree. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, what scares you the most, Nick? I mean, you're a sort of fearless man. You know, you have a beard. Um, <laughs> Uh, but what, what 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 but what scares you the most about this? I mean, you, you've you've sort of been talking about this. Um, long enough that you sounded crazy at first years ago, um, and now you're just kind of coming into the mainstream. What, what, what keeps you up at night? Which which part was I sounding crazy about? The social media, the spies, the oh well, yeah, the, the, the idea that the idea that there were that 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 there was this sort of subliminal John Le Carre novel taking place, uh, you know, beneath the surface with all these like wonky half zip wearing Stanford guys with bad haircuts. Like uh, people, you know, I I thought you were kind of a kook when you would talk about it, um, but. But you were not a kook, Nick. You were. Thanks, you're thanks, right. John. I really right. appreciate those kind words. Um, I, look, I think that I do think that it's interesting. I've I've spoken 
I get to, you know, one of the great parts of my job and doing this podcast is I get to speak to a lot of really smart people that, that are hyper-focused on certain areas of technology and society and politics and culture. And, and there's, there are a few consistencies in what people say except one. And the consistency is that everyone, everyone is afraid except Mark Zuckerberg. And, right. and I think that he's probably deep down still afraid too. Everyone is afraid of what is going to happen with artificial intelligence. There is a belief that 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 unlike nuclear power and nuclear weapons, which which were in the hands of 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 which were very difficult to build and were in the hands essentially of yeah sure right you know even if it was a dictator, it was one person who still had a rational group of people around them um, or half rational. AI is something that. Is, is not going to be in the hands of one person. It is going to be something that is in the hands of itself. And, and I think that what, what scares me the most is, is kind of the Hollywood version of this, which is that we built something that goes rogue and can't be stopped. Uh, and the only way you can stop it is by unplugging it. And the only way you can unplug it is by unplugging everything. And we're kind of faced with that, that decision. And, um, and I think that, um, when you think about the fact that you know artificial intelligence, whether it's a year out or twenty years out or whatever it is, eventually it will be smarter than we are in many respects, and we will not be able to understand what it is doing. And there's a classic example: Facebook was working on some AI stuff, um, and uh, the AI there was two AIs that were talking to each other, and they uh, they soon started to. Um, they developed their own language and the machines had to be unplugged because no one knew what they were talking about. Um, and you see this over and over, these very rudimentary, basic artificial intelligence technologies that people are working on, IBM, places like that, um, and the things that they do that no one ever expects. And it's one thing with uh, with a conversation on social media or you know playing you know a game of Go or whatever it is, and it's something completely different when it comes to warfare and, and Wall Street and and um the power grids in america and i think that if we're we are we do have some of the smartest technology technology engineers in the planet working in silicon valley and tech in seattle and places um but all it takes is a thumb drive uh for someone to take that and it to just spiral completely out of control well nick we're fucked huh I think yeah I think that the uh the theme you know I think this is I think this is podcast 50 I believe maybe 51 Happy birthday we're, we're sweet pro- prince we're approaching we're approaching a year and there's been a theme of consistency that hopefully I will will live to regret saying and I will get it wrong but the 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 reality is I think we're pretty fucked No it, it's um it's all scary stuff it actually uh You've you've converted me. Um, I used to think a lot of this was was blasé, and I sort of blithely uh, tuned you out <laughs> just, as you would go on these yeah. these like dystopian rants. But um, if we've learned two things, uh, it's that it's happening, and it's happening a lot faster than um, than anyone could predict. And that, that's that's all, all these all these kind of technological tributaries, but in particular, the most um, uh, the most genocidal ones. Um, are uh, are rapidly uh, uh, approaching us. So, um, uh, on that note, I've done my job here. I think, right? <laughs> I've, I've, you have. I've, I just I've freaked I, everyone I wanna... out. Yeah, get in your bunkers inside the hive, listeners. Put your Speaking head down under of the technology, desk. The raid's you, coming. You have to. 
you have to check out the uh, – I know I, I rail against technology, but you have to check out uh, the Away suitcase that I got. Uh, it's amazing. It's got a little power station in it, and you can charge your cell phone while you're traveling. Well, that's pretty sweet. It's I can't cool. wait for that. That's, a, um, that's an innovation I can get behind. Yes, me too. Um, all right, John. Uh, till next week. I will miss you. Uh, till till uh, till something scary again next week. Actually, next week we have a we have a we have a great guest. I'm a, I'm off to go interview them right now, and it's it's I think it's going to be a pretty compelling conversation. So I will leave it at that. Great tease, Nick. I can't wait. <laughs> so that's it for this week. I want to thank my guest David Guang and of course John Kelly, my editor. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and listen to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a really nice review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, Away Travel. Uh, Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.